The reading today is from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Good morning. My name is Tom Carpenter. Uh, Tom Hendricks is away, but I pointed out to the worship team a little earlier that my mother's maiden name is Hendricks. So, in some way, I am Tom Hendricks. <laughs> so, um, many of you don't know me, but uh, I'm actually going to be the Bethany Bible teacher uh, this coming year. Uh, we've been worshiping here about 10 months. Uh, before this, I, I was a church planter and missionary in London, England for 13 years. And uh, but it's a delight to be here. Rio is a good place. Amen. Amen. Um, so we're finishing. This is the last on, on the series of the Ten Commandments, uh, and it's been a good series because we've been able to look at the Ten Commandments in a positive light. It's not just a, a bunch of negative commandments of don't steal, don't do this, don't do that. Um, actually, it's about giving life. It's about looking at love and joy and peace and and all the the positive attributes that we see within God's kingdom through the lens of the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so we we come to this word covet. And even last night, I asked uh, my children, what's the word covet mean? And and they they didn't know. Um, And it's a tough one for South Florida and I I think uh, America in particular. Uh, But I thought maybe just uh, to define or illustrate coveting, I'd start start out with a story. And uh, I was traveling to the Galleria Mall with my wife several months ago. And as we crossed the main intersection into the main entrance of the Galleria Mall, there was a brown wallet 
in the middle of the intersection. And she said, look, there's a wallet. Um, maybe we should get it. And my first thought was, we should not get that wallet. There's nothing in there. But she pulled over immediately to the side, and she said, Tom, run out and get the wallet. And I was just a little bit shocked that she would suggest that I run out into the busy intersection. And I said, if you want the wallet, you can go get it yourself. Um, romance. That's romance for you, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever um, found like 5 to $10 on the floor, you know, in the parking lot somewhere. You have this amazing feeling like, man, it's my lucky day. I uh, just found 5 to $10. Well, as I was running back, uh, dodging traffic, um, I felt as though the end of the rainbow had touched down in front of the Galleria Mall because I had this feeling of euphoria because I, as I opened the wallet, there was like $2,000 in the wallet. Um, I know, I know. Um, and my first thought, I have to confess, wasn't, I sure hope we can find the owner of the wallet. I thought, wow, this is a lot of money. I want this money. <laughs> Even my son yesterday was like, man, I would have kept the money. Uh, I was coveting the money. Um, and so you know, now, you know, what do you do? What do you do at this point? Um, do I go in and, and buy a MacBook Pro at the, at the Apple Store, at the Galleria Mall? Or do I spend $2,000 on a sermon illustration, which is what I'm doing right now, still working on a cracked screen computer that's six years old. Uh, fortunately, we were able to actually find the owner on Facebook. Um, he was so relieved because he was going on a cruise later that day with his partner. And uh, when we met him, we were able to give the money back. He was, thank you so much because you have restored my faith in humanity. Um, but I wonder if he would have said that if he had known all the thoughts that I had had about keeping the money and wanting the money. Um, and who knows? On another day, given the circumstances, who knows? Maybe I would have kept it. Um, so I thought it would be good for us to, to look at really coveting uh, first the, the definition and, and then the cure. So like I said before, this word is not used very much in uh, today's language, it's rarely used. Um, but at least what the commentators say is that uh, this, this word, covet, can be used both positively and negatively. I think the only positive use that I've seen uh, in our day is, boy, I would sure covet your, as Christians, you know, I covet your prayers, yeah. Um, that's the only time that I've really ever used the word. Um, but within the Bible, it can be used positively, at least according to the commentators. In Psalm 19.10, the writers claims that God's words are more precious than gold, but what he actually says is that they are more desired or coveted than gold. And Peter expresses something similar in 1 Peter 2.2 when he says that we should crave or covet pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in your salvation. So is it okay to desire things 
Of course, it's okay to want a house, a car, to get married, a good education, to have children, uh, to do well in your job, uh, or in my case, you know, or to want a sports team to win. Um, I see there was a there was Columbia over here earlier. Um, uh, there she is. I see you. Or to want LeBron James not to win. Um, he's won enough. Um, and it's a good thing. When Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, that was a good desire. Um, imagine if that came true. Imagine if that desire were true. This room would look a lot different. And that's a good thing to desire. Uh, and look at the ultimate example. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a good thing to desire God's kingdom. It's a good thing to desire love and joy and peace and patience. But unhealthy desires can be hard to quantify, and this is tough within this particular commandment because it's talking about things that are going on on the inside. Uh, it's easy to think about lying and stealing and murder because those are outward observable actions. But in this case, it's not so much about what you're doing, but what you want to do or what you crave. And it's ultimately talking about what your heart desires most. It's what consumes you. And think about it, in the morning, it's the first thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning. So I guess the question is, what are good desires? In some ways, what's good coveting and what's bad coveting? And if you go back to the text, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the commandment doesn't bar you from desiring things, but rather setting an inappropriate desire on what your neighbor has. And I think that's the difficult thing about American culture, especially American culture, having been back for 10 months now. You know, I drop off my kids uh, at the line right here for school and drive up with my car and then I look over at that car and I think, that would be a pretty nice car to have. Or I drive through some of the amazing neighborhoods in Fort Lauderdale. Man, that would be a nice house to have. That would be a nice yacht to have. I wouldn't want the expenses, but... That would be a nice family to have. That would be an amazing career to have. And so what's so wrong with wanting what your neighbor has? It's about contentment. Coveting what other people have disables you from being content with the life that you have, with the life that God has given you. Let's take Facebook. Oh, man. Oh, you know, I just looked at my friends and they're on this amazing trip to Hawaii and I'm just so happy for them. I, I mean, I don't want to just click the like button. I want to click the love button because I'm so happy that they get to go to Hawaii and I don't. 
Somebody said that contentment in America is making more than your brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> coveting not only disables you from being content, uh, but it also destroys your, your ability to be grateful for what you have. And I would just say, guys, you have a lot of stuff. Be grateful and quit striving for the things that you don't have. God is good to you. Um, and I just, you know that it's just pressed upon you over and over again in light of the culture that we live in. Uh, just to give you an illustration, um, I was talking to my daughter and she wanted me to point out that this happened a long time ago. Um, she's 12 now. This happened when she was about seven. And, uh, and we are influenced by the culture around us in light of the fact that I'm a pastor. You know, I talk about good things and not materialism and and over and over again in our house, and I asked her one day, I said, Natalie, um, what do you think the definition of success is? And she says, to get a good job and make lots of money. And I was like, okay, we got some work to do. Um, so I gently kind of pushed at it for the over the course of a year, the defining success in, in little ways. And I came back to her about a year later when she was eight, now she's 12, um, and said, Natalie, what's your definition of success? And she was more nuanced. She said, well, um, it's good that you have a good family. So that's good. And, you know, and it would be good to get married. That's successful. And uh, to have a good education and to have some type of a, a job. And I thought, okay, well, those are all good things. But look at our friends who is not married. Is she successful? She said, Yeah. And then I said, and this other woman, she doesn't really have a family. Do you think she's successful? She said, yeah. And, and this one guy we know, he's great. He's fantastic. But he's unable to work. Do you think he's successful? And she said, yeah. And then she said, so what you're saying, Dad, is you just need to believe in Jesus and you're successful. I said, you got it. You got it. How did it all start? I mean, look at Adam and Eve. They literally lived in perfect paradise. Per paradise. Everything was perfect. Perfect food, perfect bodies, perfect weather. It wasn't too hot or too cold. Perfect relationship with God. And one day they decided it wasn't enough and they wanted more. Coveting literally ruined the world. And coveting can ruin your world. So you're going to have to make distinctions between good, healthy desires and unhealthy desires. Again, some desires are good, but how do you know when a desire becomes unhealthy? And again, it's just to remember the first commandment, um, that you shall have no other gods before me. And, and actually the last commandment is, is really like a, it's like a sandwich of sorts, that you really shall crave or not go after anything, you know, but me. Um, there are plenty of things that you can want. Good health, good weather, good paying jobs. But this is probably the question you need to ask yourself if you're trying to determine, well, what am I really coveting that's not good for me? What happens to you, and this is the question, if you really can't have that thing that you really, really, really want. So for instance, uh, giving back the $2,000 didn't destroy me. 
it wasn't that big of a deal. Losing a marriage, losing a career, losing my savings, losing a family member, that's a different story. So if you're miserable at the thought of losing this one thing that consumes you, it may be a good marker or sign that you're coveting something or desiring something and it's unhealthy for you. So Rio Vista, what's that one thing that you want above all else? Be honest. What's that one thing that would leave you devastated if you didn't have it? And that's where God says and comes in and says, you need to desire me first. I'll give you the other stuff. It will come in due course, but you need me first. And let me just say this. I know that some of you here, it could have been a long time ago, it could have been recently, have lost something that's very valuable to you. You lost a marriage, you lost a job, you lost a business, you lost a family member, and your heart aches because of the loss. These can be good desires, and it is right to grieve the loss. But my prayer is that you can move past the grief to the new things that God gives you. And I'm also hoping that you can see that even the best things in life, relationship, jobs, family, you name it, can't complete you. My hope is that your grief will point to the ultimate cure. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such thing as sex. If I find a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse my desire for that place. Um, Chuck Swindoll puts it more poetically, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors, it was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air, it was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season, it was winter, but it was spring that I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature, I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect, I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated, I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirits. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitation. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Rio Vista, what do you really want? What are you coveting? Striving for more won't cure us. How can you be truly content, no matter the circumstances? And so I think that's the next question. Well, there's the definition. Um, let's look at the cure. So there are various ways of treating uh, this idea of coveting. And most people never cure it. They just uh, 
deal with it through replacement strategies. So regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you could look out at this one thing that this other person have, and you think, oh man, that family, that life, that career, that whatever it is, you fill in the blank, and you say, you know, that, that's what I'm going to build my life around. I'm going to strive after that one thing. Years, decades go by, um, and you begin to see that your life is beginning to deteriorate, and you think, it's not worth it. My life is being destroyed by this one thing. So you deploy a replacement strategy. You begin, you begin to make your life about something else. So if your career is destroying your life, you say, you know what, I'm going to focus on marriage, or I'm going to focus on my family, uh, or I'm just going to volunteer more, or I'm just going to relax. So uh, you don't necessarily have to believe in God to look at this commandment of coveting uh, and deploy this replacement strategy. And and it's like that with any of the other commands. Lying's bad, so, you know, I'll be more truthful. Killing's bad, so I'll I'll work on my anger issues. Coveting's bad, so I'll try to find balance. And again, this is the secular cure. Can you just replace one thing for another in the hopes of curing the deep, heartfelt desires we all have that exist beyond this life. Is there really a cure for coveting outside of God? Well, okay, let's go just a little bit further. That's a secular approach. There is also the religious approach. But let's say you believe in God. You acknowledge that there's a higher power working in your life. Um, You actually have employed a similar strategy to to the secular strategy, which is One day you said, I've gone after the houses, the cars, the yachts, the career, the family, the relationships, and it's not enough. So you say, there must be more to life than this. You've just done another replacement strategy. You've replaced all the stuff with God. But is that enough? You see, every major religion and philosophy would acknowledge that there's more to life than this. Buddhism, Mormonism, even yoga. Christianity is not unique in that claim. And and so I thought I'd give you just an illustration from my life back in London. Uh, I ran similar programs and camps to what we see here every summer called Summer Sational, uh, where we did outreach programs that were more secular but run by Christians in the hopes of reaching our surrounding neighborhood. And uh, a few years back, I actually brought Elizabeth Hunter, who is now running Summer Sational here, and Mem Mahoney, Uh, to work with me as volunteers. It was great. Uh, But hear the comparison. They were committed Christians. They were great volunteers. They worked well with children. They exhibited wonderful fruit in their lives of love and joy and peace and patience. They were great. But I also had two Muslim female volunteers working with me too. They were committed Christians. They were great volunteers. They worked well with the children. They exhibited wonderful fruit of their lives, of of love and joy and peace. They would have made great volunteers here at this church. And I sat down with a pair of them, and it was this fascinating exchange, and I asked them both questions, uh, really about their own backgrounds and what it is they believed. 
and it felt as though I were looking at mirror images of the same people, two female volunteers, two Christian volunteers, just from different cultures. So the secular approach is limited because we can only replace one earthly desire for another. The religious approach is also limited because is it enough? We have to make some distinctions. So how is Christianity different from every other religion? Well, every other religion, Islam, Hinduism, basically says good people go to heaven. Christianity is the only religion that says bad people go to heaven who cry out for a savior. Every other religion says that you're loved by God when you do good works. Christianity comes along and says you're loved by God no matter what. He is a good heavenly father who loves you. Every other religion says that you need to follow the principles of the Ten Commandments. And Christianity comes along and says, you don't follow principles, you follow a person. And what I would say here today is you know that principles do not make you whole. A family, and you see just small glimpses of it when I look around the room and I think, oh man, look at that family, or look at that father holding that child. You feel completeness within a family structure. You feel whole when you're in a good relationship. And Christianity is saying following principles will not do it. You, my friends, are following the perfect person. Every other religion says that you need to, follow, you need to listen to a teacher who will point you to God. And Jesus is coming along and saying, no, I, I and the Father are one. Um, I'm God. Connect with me and you connect with the Father. And this is, this is the important bit. So you begin to see that the Ten Commandments aren't just a set of guidelines that will help you in life. The ten, in the Ten Commandments, you're reading about a person. Jesus never lied. Jesus never killed. He never stole. He honored his parents perfectly. I mean, to put it another way, we read... Uh, that the summary of the entire law is love, and then in 1 John it says, God is love. And finally we see in the Ten Commandments that, that Jesus comes along and says, I have come to fulfill the law. You know, how? Well, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, and Jesus says, I am the way. The fourth commandment says, you need rest, you're killing yourself with your jobs. And Jesus says, Sunday isn't enough. I am your rest. You try to satisfy your hunger with idols, but Jesus says, I'm the bread you need. The earth is filled with murder and death, and Jesus says, I am the life. The earth is filled with fake news, and Jesus says, I'm the truth. We long for earthly relationships to complete us, and Jesus says, I am your true husband. And we long for, we long for good leadership long for it. Our daily news cycle is filled with, with bad leadership. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd you need. You need me. So no matter your religious background, 
or if you've been a Christian for 50 years, what are your true desires? You know, in, in some ways, I'm asking you, will you covet Jesus? He's the cure. So, three points um, in terms of application. If you're not sure there's a God, and there may be some, some people in this room who are just, they're just not sure, then I leave you with the challenge of considering whether you can cure unhealthy desires with healthier ones. And be honest, will more diet, exercise, and a new job really cure you of your ultimate desires that God can give you? And if you believe in God, but you're not sure about the Christian faith, can you find a cure by being good or just trying harder uh, with God in some terms of some form of a higher power? I'll be honest with you. Trying harder is going to exhaust you. Through Jesus' death on the cross, you are perfectly accepted by God no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run. He loves you. And so, if you haven't done it yet, will you put your trust in Jesus today? And if you're a Christian, and I realize that's probably most of the people here in this room, I hope you've been able to identify what it is that's consuming you besides Jesus. And this is the clincher right here. If God were to ask you today, could you walk away from the thing that is consuming you? It's not easy. He's offering you, God is offering you something so much more than a great 401k and a great house. Again, will you covet Jesus over everything else in your life? And so let me finish with this hymn. It says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? O Rio, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we... Um, we have so many desires, and, and ultimately it's these desires oftentimes that leave us weary and troubled. They leave us in darkness. They leave us in search for some type of cure that will cure our souls. And so I pray this morning that where our eyes have turned from other things, that we would be able to turn our eyes to Jesus and that his face truly would be wonderful in the face of so much luxury that surrounds us, that seems wonderful on the outside. Give us a new picture and glimpse of who Jesus really is. And may those things that we strive after, may you cause them to grow strangely dim in the light of what you can really offer us. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus.
Amen.